Tonight I wanted to speak about bodhicitta. Bodhi means awakened, and citta, heart-mind. The awakened heart-mind. The heart-mind that is untainted with self. The practice of bodhicitta is the journey of awakening. A journey that can be undertaken not just for ourselves alone, but for the benefit of all beings. To me, this is what helps give a context to the practice one might do sitting here in silence, looking into suffering, looking into the depths of suffering, places of separation, isolation, loneliness. As we do so, we do so in what can be a large context. We do so because this is what helps to free the mind. This, from this place of freedom, one can then help others to be free. an immense path. (laughs) When I touch into it, I'm just awed. (laughs) Sorry, it took me by surprise. Um, Really, I have to say, when I speak about this path tonight, um, just the seed of it, it, I feel so humble. You know, I feel, in one sense, so small, and yet compelled to do so because of having tasted of what bodhicitta is about, what the power of this practice is about when we hold it in the fastest way possible, where it's unlimited. Know that we really, in our heart's desire, wish to be free from suffering, free from pain, in order to help all beings to have the same. But the work that we do here is for the benefit of all beings. And really, with wisdom, we start to see how it is just what is so. That through the interconnectedness of life, that there is no self, separate self, that can be liberated. Our liberation is entwined with all beings. And it becomes evident as we practice. We really begin to see how this is so. And, you know, when we might begin doing a practice that has this self that seeks enlightenment or freedom from suffering at the center of it, it can be a way that we rarefy self that is just enhancing self-cherishing tendencies. But when we broaden, when we become inclusive, when our hearts open and become engaged, and we see the interconnectedness, we see that all these beings around us are our companions on this journey. And it's not about I, me, and mine. It's really a way of turning our minds to the inherent qualities, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. A way of recognizing the empty nature of the mind on the absolute level. There's really two levels to bodhicitta. There's the level of the relative, the, and you know it's where we need to be able to know and experience loving kindness, compassion, that we need to be able to call 
these qualities into our life. And it's not the cultivating, the making of these qualities. It's the remembering. It's the removing of the obstructions. These qualities are naturally present in the awakened mind. But they need to be remembered, rediscovered. And so there needs to be a practical level of application of this practice. And then the ultimate level of bodhicitta is the recognition of the empty nature of mind. A wisdom that is released from the taint of self. the ultimate level of bodhicitta is pure compassion where there's sincere feelings without attachment without misconception it's the ultimate compassion We learn to live our lives with a unity between this relative bodhicitta, loving-kindness, compassion, and the absolute, where we see into the nature, the way of things. It's the infusion of wisdom so that our compassion is not limited, is not bound is not self-referencing. On the relative level, we live honoring, respecting, and caring for all beings. In uh, seeing this as being so vast, I see this combination of the relative and the absolute as taking such care with the smallest things we do in life and holding that within the fastness, within the wisdom, within the emptiness. Kuna Rinpoche, who was, um, actually I'm not sure if he was Indian or Tibetan, he lived on the Indian-Tibetan border, and I think he may have been born on the Indian side, spent time in Tibet, and then went back to India. But he was a lama who was a renunciate and who really just brought this aspiration of bodhicitta to the center of his life. And he wrote a book that's called Verses in Praise of Bodhicitta. And it's entitled, Vast as the Heavens and Deep as the Sea. And that's what this practice is. Vast as the heavens and deep as the sea. In the beginning, we can plant the seed of bodhicitta. And this is what's called aspiration bodhicitta, where we let this intention to awaken or to remove ignorance for the welfare and benefit of all beings be our central motivation. And we can plant this seed at the beginning of a sitting where we may, you know, to ourselves give words to this aspiration. May I become quickly liberated for the welfare and benefit of all beings. And at the end of a sitting, we can dedicate the merit to be of benefit to all beings. And so first we begin with planting the seed, the aspiration of bodhicitta. And then we need to nurture that. 
And this is our practice on the relative level. The intention is not about results. We could get caught into thinking, you know, the, the idea of all beings being benefit, benefited by our practice, uh, of the capacity of ourselves to really work towards all beings being liberated can seem huge, vast, impossible. And yet, what it's really about is the opening of the heart, the inclusion, the really stepping out of this self-referencing way of life and stepping into a view of life that is based on truth, which is interconnectedness. Bernie Glassman, maybe some of you have heard of him, a Zen teacher. Um, it, he's, he was, you know, has for many years been working with homeless people in Yonkers. Um, and he said there was no way to end the homeless, but he would, def- he would devote his life to trying. And this is really what bodhi, the, this element of bodhicitta, the intention is, that we devote our lives to the greatest capacity that is possible. And then not to get caught in the worry, the sense of futility, that we just keep doing the best that we can with it. And through this really needing to nurture the seed of bodhicitta. First of all, to begin with, we really need mindfulness on this journey. Because without mindfulness, we cannot even see that which is virtuous, that which is helpful. Or we can't distinguish that which is just going to perpetuate suffering. So we use mindfulness as a basis, this capacity to just see things as they are without needing to change, manipulate. It allows us to really enter into this life as a human being, to feel what it's like to have this mind and body It allows us to find a deeper harmony with this experience. Mindfulness will guide us towards discovering the innate qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, wisdom. The Brahma-viharas also become very important. The Brahma-viharas being divine abidings, divine home, our natural home. Probably many of you are familiar with the divine abidings. Metta, or loving-kindness, Karuna, compassion. Mudita, appreciative or sympathetic joy. Upeka, or equanimity. The Brahma-viharas themselves really come into play when we live a life of relationship. When we are dealing with ourselves, ourselves within the world of others. That these are qualities that help us to have harmonious relationships, fruitful, beneficial. (laughs) 
these qualities, when we turn our minds towards them, when we invite these qualities into our lives, help to erode tendencies of separation, contraction. We work with remembering them as our natural home. We learn a way of relating that is based in compassion, care, kindness. This is from Kuna Rinpoche. He says, if the mind is moistened with bodhicitta, one takes joy in abandoning wrongdoing. One takes, takes joy in, develop, <laughs> in doing virtue. <laughs> I can't read my writing in doing virtue, and one takes joy in removing fears. There really comes a joy, a delight, a lightning when we turn towards these Brahma-viharas, they gladden the mind, brighten the mind. Metta, or loving-kindness, it's really the foundation of all of the Brahma-viharas. It's a heart that's benevolent, friendly, inclusive, gentle, We find that as we feel at home, at ease in the world, we can more easily open to others' suffering. We find joy more prevalent. We find the capacity to trust in the lawfulness of life. We all want to be happy. It's something that we all share as living beings, this desire to be happy. Many times we are mistaken in what will bring happiness, and this is the confusion. But with metta or loving kindness, we go back to this really basic wish to be happy, that others may be happy. And really, it's our fundamental right. But we have to reclaim it. We've forgotten. So with metta, touching into this desire to be happy. Now, it's a longing of the heart. We need to begin with loving kindness to ourselves. Because if we don't have this friendly, open-hearted relationship with this being, this entity sitting here, how can we possibly open our hearts to others? Metta is strengthened by seeing the goodness, seeing the goodness in ourselves, seeing the goodness in others. There comes this natural quality of kindness, when we see the goodness. With metta, we begin with ourselves, but gradually expand the the circle of care, of kindness, to those who are dear to us, to those whom we maybe don't even know and to those who are difficult, and to all beings. 
but it's gradually done. Working with just opening the heart with care, kindness. We often find that it's difficult because we really stop seeing other living beings as living beings. We objectify and they solidify into the enemy, the difficult one. Something we don't want in our lives. But we find if we can come back to a shared level of living beingness and recognize that all beings have this desire to be happy, that the heart does open. I discovered this one day when I was on retreat and I was practicing in a little cabin out in the country and I used to sit outside a lot. As I would be sitting outside on the balcony there, there was often these two little mice that would come. And actually when they first arrived on the balcony, I thought there was ten of them. They were tumbling along and it was just this flurry of activity. And I have always had a fear of mice. And so I saw these mice and it was like retraction, recoil. And and, um, I later discovered there was only two mice. And I actually nicknamed them Double Trouble. (laughs) Double was um, the the brave one. And he was always leaping out. And then Trouble would kind of timidly come behind. And they were just this pair that was filtering through my experience. But there was, in the beginning, a lot of, uh, you know. And there was a cat on the premises. And the first time I saw the mice, it was like, oh, I wonder if the cat's around. You know, is that really, you know, that breaking of the precepts if the cat eats the mice? Um, and, but, you know, there was just not wishing well for these beings. And then, at some point, over time, there was starting to connect with these beings that every day tumbled through my world. And there must have been a softening and accepting, a, you know, a growing sense of fondness towards Uh, Because one day, the cat came. And as soon as I saw the cat, I went into panic. Where are the mice? Are they safe? You know, and I just realized my whole relationship with these mice had shifted. And, you know, if you look, when somebody's an enemy, there's a level of disconnect there. There's, you know, something that's being objectified. And just seeing if you can drop down to whoever this being. It doesn't mean that you like this being. You know, it doesn't mean that you approve of their actions. But this being is a being just like you. And this being, like you, wants to be happy. It takes us back into this web of life, interconnectedness. It's really through the disconnect that the fear comes, the anxiety. But moving into connection, it's natural that the heart opens. In the commentaries, a description of metta is the welling up that a mother cow experiences on seeing their newborn calf. You know, it's a movement of the heart. And really, it's a movement of a heart, of the heart based in wisdom, based in this understanding of interconnectedness. In our lives, we probably experience moments where Metta spontaneously arises. Now, sometimes being around small children, and they can do, you know, they can have just these spontaneous acts of generosity where, you know, the giving of a flower, they pick it, can pick a dandelion and give it to you, and their whole face lights up, their whole being lights up. And, boom, you know, just seeing that, the heart opens. Animals. I don't know if you've had the experience here of feeding the birds. 
uh, and I'm not trying to set up a practice of going out and feeding the birds, but you know, the, the birds around here have been around meditators for many years. Many of them have lost their fear. And one at times can stand with seeds in the palm of your hand. And the, you know, this tiny little creature comes and perches there and eats from your hand. See if you can stop your heart from opening. I don't think you can. <laughs> it's so natural. Sometimes we meet great beings whom really embody loving kindness. And it's so inspiring, touching. You know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, I once met him, and it was in Dharamsala. And he, you know, I'd heard he was giving audience, and I didn't know what that meant. And then I was told it would mean that everyone would line up and one by one file past him and shake his hand. And I'd always heard of His Holiness that when he meets somebody, it's as if he's meeting a long-lost friend. I remember that as I took my place in this line. And there was probably close to 800 people in front of me. So as I was standing there in the cynical mind, I don't think I'm going to be his long-lost friend. (laughs) He's got quite a few other friends. (laughs) But it was amazing. As soon as there was, was about two people in front of me, something in my being recognized that something was about to happen. I was stepping into a field, you know, just the presence of metta. And felt, you know, this whole awakening happen. And then sure enough, when I looked at His Holiness, (laughs) I was the only person in the universe. (laughs) I was the long-lost friend. I mean, I was just bathing in the feeling of metta. And I was a wreck after. <laughs> you know, it was just like, wow. <laughs> mm, it's so powerful. What a, gift. what a gift when we have, you know, these moments. And, you know, we experience moments where it happens when our heart opens to another. And it's such a blessing. I'd actually like to share something the Dalai Lama once said. It comes out of his book, The Art of Happiness. And um, Howard Cutler asked His Holiness if he ever got lonely. And he replied, simply no. And then Howard asked him what he attributed it to. He said, I think one factor is that I look at any human being from a more positive angle. I try to look for their positive aspects. This attitude immediately creates a feeling of affinity a kind of connectedness. And it may partly be because on my part there is less apprehension, less fear, that if I act in a certain way, maybe the person will lose respect or think that I am strange. So because that kind of fear and apprehension is normally absent, there is a kind of openness. I think it's the main factor. You know, looking at someone else from a positive aspect, seeing the goodness, this invites friendliness, kindness, connection. Moments of metta in our lives can be very simple. Not to mistake metta with a sentimental love. Because metta is free of attachment. It's not self-referencing. Moments of metta can be in a moment of generosity where there's a real caring for the welfare of another. And it doesn't reference back to I, me, or mine. 
Sharon Salzberg, probably many of you may have met, know, one of the founding teachers of IMS. She says in her book on loving kindness, kindness, to love someone is to be totally present for them. To step into presence with another. This is loving kindness. Loving kindness can be expressed when we take care through our conduct, through our actions, our speech, that we let them be based upon this intention of bodhicitta, that we don't do things that are harmful, we refrain from, that we do that which is helpful, that which alleviates suffering. We find this quality of loving-kindness present in our practice when, you know, just in a very simple way, we can come back from being distracted over and over again. But we do so with kindness. There's not the brutality of the judging mind. There's the acceptance. Yes, there's getting lost. Yes, there's coming back. And we just stay steady in that. When we experience difficulties, rather than trying to push away, we establish a friendly relationship, a relationship of interest. We find moments of metta when we renounce anger and aversion. We can't stop them from arising in our mind, but when they arise, we simply don't feed them. Let them go. Let them be. Metta is a basic generosity of the heart that wishes well for all beings. The implications of metta could be huge. I remember one time I was doing an intensive Brahma-vihara retreat and doing metta for a long period of time. And it was when I hit working with all beings and, you know, just sitting all day long working with this wish for all beings to be happy. I just had the thought, what a different world it would be if for one week in everyone's life they did metta practice. It would really just change the way we live our lives. And this is expressed well by Joan Chittister. She says, Try saying this silently to everyone and everything you see for 30 days. I wish you happiness now and whatever will bring happiness to you in the future. If we set it to the sky, we would have to stop polluting it. If we set it when we see ponds and lakes and streams, we would have to stop using them as garbage dumps and sewers. If we said it to small children, we would have to stop abusing them, even in the name of training. If we said it to people, we would have to stop stoking the fires of enmity around us. Beauty and human warmth would take root in us like a clear, hot June day. We would change. When we open to beings in a kind way, it's natural that we want them to be free from suffering. And it's natural then that we begin to feel compassion. Compassion is the quivering or the trembling of the heart 
when it sees suffering, when it knows suffering, when it touches suffering. And it's the movement of the heart to alleviate it. Compassion is active. Our being here can be a form of compassionate action. The the inquiry into the roots of suffering. The desire to alleviate that suffering. Compassion is not broken by the suffering. It has the quality of fearlessness to it. It's a fearlessness that really helps us to become bigger than this small, separate self. I've seen this in action in others. One time, I was going for a walk around what's called the loop. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. There's about a three-mile loop that um, one can walk along the roads around here. And at this time, there was a dog named Kelsey living in the neighborhood. And Kelsey was said to be a bodhisattva, you know, that um, many a yogi found uh, just a kind of a warmth of connection, a tenderness of heart through this dog. And this dog would often accompany me in walking around the loop. But in walking the loop, there was two dogs that Kelsey was terrified of. And I heard that Kelsey had actually been attacked savagely by these dogs and injured by these dogs. And these two dogs are big. And, you know, even as a person, they can be pretty scary when they come charging at you. And so as I was walking, getting closer to where these two dogs lived, Kelsey started to get afraid and didn't want to go further. But I I was confident in my capacity to talk to these dogs and felt like it would be okay. And we also had another dog, Traker, coming along. Traker still lives in the neighborhood. He's the black lab. Anyhow, so Kelsey started getting nervous. And, you know, Kelsey would get become okay to keep going if she knew, he, he knew, I think, <laughs> that uh, you were paying attention and would protect. Um, he could be con- convinced to continue on. And so, you know, calming Kelsey, it's okay, it's okay, I know you're there, but we okay. And then we get up near these two dogs, and they came charging out. But, you know, I was able to say, stop, no. And they backed off, they, and they just stood there. We went past, and Traker had a different relationship with these dogs. Traker um, was on more friendly terms. So Traker hung back, and me and my friends and Kelsey walked on. But then, suddenly, these dogs turned on Traker. And in a split second, Kelsey, this dog that was so fearful of these other dogs, just turned around and went back to help her friend. You know, we just become bigger, and there's no question when we're in touch. One day, Kelsey moved away. It was a sad day in the neighborhood. (laughs) I'd like to share an expression of compassion that comes from Ryokan, the 18th century hermit Japanese monk. He said, Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering in this floating world. Having a heart that's that vast, welcoming of beings in suffering. Compassion is so strong and a strength unimaginable. Um, I'd like to share something. There, this probably many of you heard some scientists in Madison who are really scientifically looking at the effects of meditation. They're doing work that His Holiness the Dalai Lama is very much involved in, as are uh, many 
other monks, um, lay people, uh, people who have done a lot of practice. And they're looking into understanding how meditation works and how it can counter destructive emotions. And there was a monk who was being monitored and he was watching a movie that could evoke very strong emotions. And this movie had been used for 30 years in emotional research. As he was watching this movie, uh, the psychological signs that became evident, one aspect was that it showed that in watching these painful scenes, his mind was in a state of relaxation that was even stronger than when the mind was just in a resting state. It's powerful. I'd like to share something from Albert Einstein. A human being is part of the whole called by us, by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. One experiences themselves, their thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical illusion of one's consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires into affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So we get in touch with compassion through the touching into suffering. In the beginning, this can have some sense of self with it. You know, whether we're bearing witness to our own pain, bearing witness to another being in pain. Sometimes as we do compassionate action, there can be the sense of I, me, who is being compassionate. But this is simply because wisdom hasn't fully matured. As wisdom matures, we see that there is a level of suffering that all beings experience simply because of confusion. That the suffering is not because of them being a bad person, wrong person, not doing things right. The suffering is because of this level of confusion. And this confusion is impersonal. As we find wisdom strengthening, we find that compassion itself is non-referential. There's no self to which it relates. When we see that suffering comes out of a level of confusion, a level of not seeing clearly, you know, falling mistakenly into a way of relating in life where objects become the fixation. When we see that this is impersonal, and we see that it is just confusion, ignorance, when we see the emptiness of all life, then it moves into the absolute level of compassion, non-referential compassion, which is a direct experience of emptiness. 
loving kindness and compassion are not easy on the relative level. You know, it's sitting here when we could be doing loving kindness practice and we get to somebody who's difficult, a challenge, that can feel difficult. When we, in our lives, have to deal with beings whom are challenging, whom don't act the way we want them to, it can be very, very challenging. When we're really faced with the immensity of suffering, you know, when the mind wants to fall into hopelessness, we need to call upon courage. That heart that doesn't give up. That heart that stands steady. That rests itself in the intention, the motivation, without looking at the result. And it takes immense courage. And many times we will lose sight and we just come back. This is again from Kunu Rinpoche. Even if a diamond is broken, it doesn't stop being called a diamond. Similarly, even flashes of bodhicitta do not stop being called bodhicitta. No, we get flashes in our life of compassion, bodhicitta. Because we have moments where we get caught in ignorance, it doesn't eliminate the bodhicitta. It doesn't eliminate the intention, the aspiration. We can come back to it. Compassion at times will be fierce compassion. It's where we wield the sword of wisdom. A sword that's made up of non-attachment and discriminating wisdom. There's many people in the world who really exude this sense of fierce compassion where It's not letting the mind lapse into attachment, where it's letting wisdom come forth in the world. One such being whom I met and really touched my heart is a monk called Mahagosananda. He's a Cambodian monk. one of the times that I met him, I was at a teacher's meeting. And this was only, you know, not so many years ago. And Mahagosananda, at this point in his life, is getting on and actually, you know, becoming a bit sana, uh, or confused at times, you know, just not having some of the functional bearings of life. And yet, in looking at his face, it radiated loving kindness, compassion. In looking at his face, You know, I was just reminded of the Buddha saying, what you turn your mind towards is what you will reap the fruits of. And looking at his face, you could see where he had been turning his mind. And I'd like to share a story that comes from his life. He he went to Thailand at one point in his life and was a monk practicing in the forest. And then Cambodia was going through all its struggles where monks were being killed, threatened. They had to disrobe. The temples were being uh, banished, um, you know, turning into rubble. And, you know, at one point, a lot of Cambodian people fled towards the Thai border. And after eight years of this struggle, um, Mahagosananda ventured to one of the refugee camps on the Thai-Cambodian 
border. And he went and he opened a monastery there. Um, And when he opened this monastery on that day, there were about 20,000 people present. And they all came together. And these are all people who had lost family members, relatives. Mahagosananda himself was said to have lost his entire family. And so, as they were all sitting there, he began to chant a traditional chant that had been predominant in village life for over a thousand years, and that people had been unable to chant for the past eight years. He chanted, Hatred never ceases through hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. As he chanted this, thousands of people joined in with him. People whom on one level many would say could have reason to feel hatred, to feel revengeful. But as they chanted, they touched into the quality of forgiveness that their hearts longed for. They found a strength. They found a purity that enabled them to keep going. This tiny monk touching the hearts of those who'd been so deeply wounded, touching their hearts with truth. We work with compassion on a momentary basis in our lives, moment by moment. It's the heart that's always looking, what can I do? How can suffering be alleviated? And remembering that as we're sitting here, we're looking deeply into the cause of suffering. I'm just going to briefly touch on the other two Brahma-viharas because all of these Brahma-viharas are a way of working with the application of bodhicitta. So the next of the Brahma-viharas is mudita, sympathetic or appreciative joy, where we can delight in the happiness, the good fortune of another delight in the fact that someone else is free from suffering. It's a true lightening of the heart. And yet, it's said to be the most difficult Brahma-vihara. Because, you know, we, we live in a competitive society. We live in a world of commodity and can sometimes think that happiness is a commodity and that if someone else has happiness, we may not have happiness. Um, you know, if someone else is looking really good, we start to think maybe we're not so good. Um, and it becomes painful. You know, jealousy is present. Uh, it's hard. Envy. And I actually have found this really interesting in my own practice because, you know, there was a lot of jealousy in my life, a lot of envy, and feeling like it was really deeply entrenched. And then one day, I, you know, in knowing about mudita, appreciative joy practice, thought, okay, when seeing somebody else happy, instead of focusing on <clears throat> my jealousy, I thought, I'm going to focus, just turn my mind towards their happiness. Just focus on that. And I couldn't believe it. Boom! There was the joy. There was this sense of delight, this lightness. And, you know, it is. We just forget You know, that mind that keeps going to the negative, the hard, the difficult, and then just refocusing. 
and really when we can rejoice in other people's happiness. It means that, you know, difficult time in our own life, ah, we can see happiness in someone else's life and rejoice. can bring happiness on a cloudy day. Um, there's one being who, to me, really embodies this quality of mudita. It's Hokansan, the Zen master who gave me my name. Um, and not meaning to be disrespectful, I, I describe him as a delightful, mischievous imp. And <laughs> he, he just has this buoyant quality. And I noticed when he would meet people that, you know, if they were experiencing some happiness in their life, he would just rejoice in it. And then one day I was meeting with him, and I had just received some good news. And when I heard that good news and I shared it with him, he just he grabbed my hand and started jumping up and down. And we were just in the middle of this room, jumping up and down like you know a couple of little kids. And what I really learned from him, too, was that it was not a happiness of collusion. It's still in him a happiness of wisdom. And because in the next moment, he could bring out that Zen stick that Zen masters are famous for. So it doesn't go into, you know, again, um, a sentimentality, a delusion. It's really that open, spontaneous, delightful heart in seeing the alleviation of suffering. There's a description of mudita that I love um, because it, it speaks of, too, its simplicity and its coolness. It's described as the smile on a Buddhist face. And you know, many of these Buddha statues just have this tiny upturned smile. And then equanimity the unshakable balance rooted in wisdom or clear seeing. It brings full presence or connection. It's the mind that doesn't fall into extremes. It's subtle and yet profound. It actually plays a crucial role in the Brahma Viharas. It's what helps keep loving kindness and compassion from moving into uncontrolled emotion. It gives love the strength of non attachment. It helps compassion to move into action without attachment to results. It helps strengthen fearlessness through bringing in connection, calmness, and patience. It helps our love and compassion to become boundless, non-discriminating, all-inclusive. The Brahma-viharas are not lofty ideals, and one can at times get caught in thinking of them in that way. But if we look in our lives, we see that actually they are what we can do when nothing else seems possible. When things go horribly wrong, mistakes are made, when there's a feeling of helplessness, we can still love, we can still care, we can still find kindness. When somebody's dying, and you know, we can't stop that, it's a natural part of life. We can be there, we can bear witness, we can hold them with kindness and love. When our children get caught in confusion, when they do things that are painful, when they do things that we wish they wouldn't, we can still love them, keep our hearts open. 
I remember one time in my own life when I had been really sick. I actually thought I was going to die. I've, and yet the body just kept going on. It felt like the lights had gone out, but the body continued. And there was just one being in my life who could still make me laugh. And that laughter would just light up my mind. And at times the world is so dark. It's so in need of loving kindness, compassion, joy, wisdom. And we find it in places of simplicity not holding it as something that's out of our reach, but something that's inherent. So the four Brahma-viharas are an application of bodhicitta a way that we can work on the relative level in our lives. On the ultimate level, the absolute level, looking to the empty nature of mind, the mind of non-clinging, non-grasping, the mind freed of greed, hatred, and delusion. The absence of a self-centeredness. We do this in our practice looking towards the way of things the nature of things, looking towards the Dhamma. It said, the precious relative bodhicitta is compassion, and the precious ultimate bodhicitta is emptiness. And with compassion and emptiness, Enlightenment is unavoidable. Bringing this aspiration of bodhicitta to the center of our life, letting it be a seed of potential, something we apply in practical ways in our life, and something that helps us to open to the vastness, the truth, the way of things, guiding our lives so that this life may be of benefit for all beings. So let's just sit for a moment. This is from Lama Zopa. Compassion pursues you to develop wisdom and eventually ultimate nature and can be cultivated by each individual. It leads to happiness for all beings touched by one's compassion and it can be transmitted to all beings. In this way, we are responsible for the happiness of all sentient beings and their enlightenment. When we don't practice compassion, Numberless beings suffer by its absence. That's the danger of not practicing and the urgency to practice. We can't delay. We can't wait or idle our time away because compassion is essential.
may the merit or wholesome energy of our practice be dedicated to the welfare, happiness, and liberation of all beings everywhere.